This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast. In partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo, I am Andrew Keats, managing editor here at Voice of San Diego, and I am joined, as always, by my fellow managing editor, Andrea Lopez Viafania. How's it going, homie? Hey, Andy. It's the you? Andy show today. That's right. Andy's. All Andy's all the time. <laughs> uh, that is right. Scott is off this week. He will be back next week, uh, unless. Somebody intervenes and keeps him away. Which <laughs> be fine. Coming up on the show this week, the biggest issue San Diego mayors have faced for the last decade has been homelessness. Well, former Mayor Kevin Faulkner, who struggled to address homelessness during his time in office, has nonetheless gone on something of a media tour about his legacy effectively combating homelessness here in San Diego. Uh, he is now trying to take that that legacy campaign to the next step and is trying to make something happen in the next election. Not this November, but the one after that. We will discuss. And at just one year into its new plan to address housing, the city of San Diego is already way behind. This is part of the state-required housing element process, the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, RENA, as all the cool kids call it, right? Mm-hmm. Does it have an, a shortened version? Rena. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. You said it so fast I didn't even hear yes. it. Um, so the city now has to triple, triple the number of housing permits it hands out every year for each of the next seven years in order to meet that standard that it set for itself just a year ago. We will explain those numbers and how it fits into our ongoing housing crisis. And we have a new investigation this week from our investigative reporter, Will Hunsbury. Young men in the military are almost twice as likely to die by suicide compared to their civilian peers, that is, other uh, young men who are not in the military. Will is going to join us to talk about that trend and what he found. And lastly, we are going to speak to Alexis Rivas at NBC San Diego. She, too, had uh, was part of a, a team-wide investigation over there at NBC about a murder that took place in San Diego 
that has a its response from the San Diego Police Department has left a lot of people, myself included, asking serious questions about what exactly they were doing and what took so long. It's a big show. All that coming up. Stay with us. Former Mayor Kevin Faulkner has been hanging out on KUSI a lot lately, uh, but when he's not playing pundit, he apparently has also been making some phone calls. Uh, we learned last week that he is gauging support at the moment for a new citizens initiative to hit the ballot in November of 2024. Now, we are not entirely sure what will be in that ballot yet, but here's what we do know. It is similar to an initiative that is moving forward in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. It would be related to homelessness in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And it would, by one means or another, make it illegal for unsheltered folks to camp on the street once there are enough shelters, safe camping options. That is the the overall structure that that we have been told. Um, is he literally making calls? Like, is yeah, he calling I mean, people you, <laughs> answer like, hello, you know, you think it's a telemarketer. No, I don't think he was making. He'd be making calls that way. He'd be calling like his former. <laughs> that's political. what I picture. <laughs> uh, hi, Tom. Is this Tom? Is this oh, this okay. former this is... Kevin Faulkner? Yeah. Uh, no, he's, he'd be calling like his former political donors, okay. the people who significantly supported him. Who, you know, not just uh, people who cut a check once or twice, but you know, believed in him, genuine benefactors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or other lobbyists, people who have um, the sort of. Uh, connections and ability to to lead these sorts of campaigns, probably calling political consultants to mm-hmm. get them to to weigh in on what the political viability of this is, how they would how he would want to make sure to structure it. Um, maybe they have some some non-public polling laying around that they could use to to give him insights and in how he would want to structure it, that sort of thing. Mm, okay. So what is Sacramento doing? Is this an initiative? That's I mean that what we had what we described there is basically what Sacramento is mm-hmm. doing. Now I I still don't quite grasp how, how what this does mm-hmm. because there's a Supreme Court case mm-hmm. that stipulates that you are not allowed to arrest somebody for being homeless if there is no shelter bed available for them. Mm-hmm. If there's nowhere for them to go, they can't be arrested for not having somewhere to go. Right. Um, so that's already the case in every city in this country. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he yes, the the city under his watch had sort of gone up against that restriction as much as they could to expand shelters, and then every time they expand shelters, to force the enfor- to push the enforcement issue a little bit more mm-hmm. to say you either go into shelter, or you're going to get arrested for one thing or another encroachment, something along mm-hmm. those lines. Um, so what this initiative would do, I don't. It, it may stipulate that policy. That would be one possible thing you could do is take it off the table make it no longer a discretionary decision for the next mayor to to pursue to go a different direction if they chose to i i don't really know um so there's nothing in writing there's and in fact for all we know he's gonna finish making his calls and people are gonna tell him that uh, it's a bad idea and that he's (laughs) the wrong guy to sell it like dude it's already happening and yeah you didn't solve homelessness (laughs) Yeah. Also, by the way, we should mention like there was this, you know, a few months ago, him and the the former housing commission executive Rick Gentry went up to um, like Spokane, Washington and like did a panel on like 
how to solve homelessness because they had already done it in San Diego. What? Like giving advice to the to <laughs> city leaders there. Like, here's what you do if you want to solve homelessness, uh-huh. as we have already done in San Diego, which, mm-hmm. you know, everybody here can take a step outside and see that that's totally true. Do you think there are some people who think that they solved homelessness? I'm sh- I mean, I'm <laughs> sure there's plenty of people who there had spoken who are like, wow, I had no idea. What, mm-hmm. a, what an accomplishment it must be. But he wouldn't be in this bland hotel conference room if if what he's saying isn't true uh, but they'd be mistaken but everyone here in san diego sees the reality of the situation most people do i don't yeah. know i mean at least i can think of at least one guy who's a little bit deluded about what happened um but so the the todd gloria of it all the todd gloria situation here which is when he ran for office Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking here at a, a tweet he sent in January of 2019 while he was running. Why does from that there. feel forever ago? It was forever ago. <laughs> we are. We had a pandemic. Yeah, yeah and that, was a like pandemic messed up our lives. You were doing a completely different job back yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm looking at a tweet right here. But but when Kevin Faulkner was the mayor of the city and Todd Gloria was running for mayor mm-hmm. of the city, um, he's responding to a story by thevoiceofsandiego.org. It's a nonprofit news website. And the title of that story is Police Ramped Up Homeless Arrests in the Days Before the Annual Homeless Count. Oh, I remember that story. And Mayor Gloria's commentary on that was, quote, criminalizing the unsheltered and skewing the we all count data is not how a region ends chronic homelessness. San Diego must change if we want to stop having the nation's fourth largest homeless population. So there's a clear message there. Mm-hmm. What this administration is doing on homelessness it's is not, not good. Mm-hmm. And my administration would do something different. Right. Um, and so that story was um, relevant to us. And we discussed it in October of last year uh, when we pull, pulled together some data that showed that enforcement had continued under Mayor Gloria's administration. Mm-hmm. He was continuing to enforce. And we sort of struggled we went back and forth quite a bit in that episode, trying to articulate or trying to discern whether there was a distinction right. between the enforcement that existed against homeless people under Mayor Faulkner and the enforcement that had existed in the first year of Mayor Gloria's tenure. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there was like this argument going, there was a talking point, I guess, would be a better point, better way to describe it as compassionate enforcement mm-hmm. that the the enforcement was enforcement yes but but done with a compassionate tone and so far as i can tell the mayor's office has now dispensed with any pretense that there's a difference between his predecessor's policies on enforcement related to the homeless and what is going on today mm-hmm. now i say that because uh, when we learned about what uh, kevin faulkner had in mind here Mm-hmm. We reached out to Todd Gloria's spokesperson um, because this seemed what, you know, Faulkner's pursuit of this ballot measure at all seems to be something of a rebuke of right. the Gloria's administration. Like what they're doing is not, not what I had done. And mm-hmm. I need I need to get back in the game. Right. And right? I had to put the band back together and, and, and start to <laughs> uh, and start to dust off the old hits. Um, and so I was surprised then. Based mm-hmm. on all of the history that I mentioned about Gloria's campaign and the la- the conversation we had about this last year, uh, the response we received, which um, came from Gloria's spokesperson, quote, I had a chance to look at what they're doing in Sacramento, and it's not clear that it's anything more than what Mayor Gloria is already doing. 
This administration has increased shelter capacity by 25% so far and will continue to add beds and non-congregate options to help all populations of unsheltered folks off the streets. Here comes a little ding. They decided to try to reverse it on us. As Voice has covered frequently, the mayor has been absolutely clear that he doesn't believe it's acceptable to camp on our streets when alternatives exist, and he's creating those alternatives at an aggressive, aggressive pace. The only mandate Mayor Gloria needed from voters to do this was his election. So it strikes me as they're saying, you've already covered the fact that we are continuing the policies of our predecessors. Mm-hmm. Why do you, why are you perpetuating the idea that what Faulkner is proposing here is any different any than what different? we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, which I actually agree with. It just so happens that like the pushback was pretty severe against those previous stories suggesting yeah. that there was a continuation. Yeah. Uh, and so now there's sort of a, a pushback against the idea that it's new that this is being discussed as a continuation. So I, I've sort of lost the thread here. Um, but it seems like maybe the upshot is we have reached an understanding that Mayor Gloria's approach towards homelessness mm-hmm. is generally speaking the same as his predecessors. Mm-hmm. And so what the heck does this measure do? Well, that's, yeah, that's, it, well, what this, you know, I'll go ahead well, I don't know. It gives former Mayor Faulkner something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there would be political consultants who would be able to collect a paycheck to do it. Mm-hmm. So it does those things. That yeah. would be something it would do. The sort of the, the, the old gang employment act. <laughs> All right, the city of San Diego is already way behind on its p- the pace of home building that it needs to maintain if it is going to meet a state-imposed housing target for the years 2021 through 2029. Bit of background. As part of the state's regional housing needs assessment, the state does is it tells every region in California, mm-hmm. here's how many homes you need to build over the next eight years. Why eight years? I don't know. That's what they decided on. Cycles go in eight years. Here's how many homes you need to build in the next eight years. Uh, that's based on how many jobs we think you're going to create, how much your population is going to increase, et cetera, et cetera. How much overcrowding you're already experiencing, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then the region, in this case, the San Diego Association of Governments, divides those housing units up among each city mm-hmm. and says to each city, all right, here's your responsibility. Go figure out a way to pass some policies that reach this level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and different cities have different homes they need to build. Different numbers of different homes numbers that, they, that they need to build, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and which makes decent sense. Mm-hmm. A, a far-flung small city out in the back country shouldn't be expected to build as many homes as a, a city in an urban core where lots of jobs are. We wouldn't want that to be the case anyway. No, because then you have people driving super far. Right. Um, now, this is not a new law. It's been around for... 50 years Mm -hmm. Uh, the track record is abysmal Um, if there's a (laughs) word lower than abysmal that's the track record for it Um, virtually no city ever in the history of the state has ever met the state the number it it just doesn't happen and then the consequences if you don't are nothing and the amount of uh, police work that the state puts into seeing if you did or didn't is also none okay Um, so this is a very effective policy measure that you can see as a model worldwide Mm -hmm. about how to do things (laughs) 
Uh, no, it's it's is re- widely regarded as a failure. Uh, uh-huh. This is, none of this is controversial. I think anybody, everybody, at the state and local level in the world of housing would regard the uh, state's regional housing needs assessment as among the worst and least effective laws that you could ever imagine, even mm-hmm. in a, a, a acid fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but they have in recent years started trying to make it more effective to try to take something that's bad and make it better. Uh, so they've done they've passed some laws that increased the way you account for the number mm-hmm. um, to make sure that you're counting all the different things that you should be counting. And they've passed other laws in this in the state legislature to um, essentially put some teeth to it to okay. get for there to be consequences if you're one of the cities that doesn't keep pace. Uh, and then additionally, and this might be as important, the state's budget has allocated more money to the housing department Mm -hmm. to hire people who are going to go review what cities are doing and ostensibly hold them accountable for not Mm -hmm. right so after 50 years they're like okay let's let's try to get serious about this (laughs) right um but so we're in the early stages of maybe kind of sort of hopefully this law mattering after Mm -hmm. five decades of it definitely not mattering at all Mm mm-hmm um, and so the city of San Diego, as this process was underway, whether they were deciding on this, the city of San Diego, under Mer- former Mayor Kevin Faulkner, um, really prided itself, really celebrated itself for encouraging the region to accept the highest possible number. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a time the state gave some preliminary, preliminary numbers down, said, here's what we we're thinking. A bunch of smaller cities in San Diego County were saying, well, let's lobby them to lower that number a lot because that number is way too high. Mm -hmm. And Mayor Kevin Faulkner said, absolutely not. That's the wrong thing we need to do. This is a crisis. We need to take some responsibility. Not only should we all accept the higher number, but I'm happy at the city of San Diego to accept the burden of doing the most work on that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we adopted a housing element, uh, went underway last year that said that we would build about 108,000 homes in the next eight years. Okay, it's about 13,000 homes a year mm-hmm. that we need to build. Um, and, and you know, as I said, we congratulated ourselves on how, how much leadership we were demonstrating by, by, by accepting that high number and, and taking seriously the, the charge that came with it. We're the leaders here. Yes. We're, we're going to get this done. Exactly. Uh, well, year one is in, mm-hmm. and we are woefully behind schedule after one year. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so we built about 5,000 homes last year, um, short of the you know 13,000 13, we would need to do. Um, so now we need to build over 14,000 homes every year over the next seven years mm-hmm. if we're going to have any prayer of making that number. Um, so we have never built in any in recent history, at least when the data available, uh, 13,000 homes in any year. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the 5,000 we built last year is like perfectly consistent with, with our age. recent history of the last 10 years. So um, what we did last year was exactly what we always do. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in, res- and in response to a charge that we would do much more. We didn't. And so do you think that being the case, that when the city uh, staff planning department issues its sort of progress report to the city council and says, it's been a year since we passed this thing. Here's mm-hmm. how things are looking. Do you think that they sort of sounded the alarm? That they sort of acknowledged, said something, tried to you know create a call for urgency? Hey, uh, you know things aren't going well. 
we we did as much last year as we've done in the previous years we can't keep doing the same thing we do every year if we're ever going to come anywhere close to this new measure that we alleged we would take very seriously do you, would you is that would you would just generally have expected city staff to have put together for their progress support if i were them yeah yeah right but what, what would you have done? So, so you're you're in the staff. Yeah. You put together a pretend, pretend job for yeah, Andy you, number two. You, you tally <laughs> up all the the homes that we put together this year. You take a look at what that means in the context of this plan that's in place. This plan that's newly serious statewide. Your approach would be what? My approach would be holy cow! We've gotten to this point. We're not even close. I need to do something. Tell people because we're not even close. Yeah. But also because I'm. Andrea, I would have been checking in throughout the past year where we're at. Be a lot of emails. Be, lots lot of, of lot emails, of lots of friendly meetings. Friendly Slack messages mentioning <laughs> that we hey were guys. both behind the pace. <laughs> yeah, that's just me though. Yeah. But having read your story, I know that's not what happened. No, in fact, there was no mention at all. Not a word, mm-hmm. not a chart, not a graph, nothing that said that they were behind the pace needed to make, make the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it said They said only... Uh, the 5,000 homes that we built last year represent 5% of the total towards our overall target. As I said, no mention that one year is 13% mm-hmm. of the time period, and they've sort of alighted the point here. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, no mention, there's you know sort of graphs. Um, they, they, they get into some discussion of other housing programs that feed into, into this, such as the creation of granny flats Mm -hmm. that uh, has been in the news quite a bit over the last few years or a program that allows people to build uh, bigger and taller buildings with more homes in them if they agree to include low-income units as part Mm -hmm. of the project they they had a bunch of historical charts showing the increased usage of those programs and how successful they've been and correctly they recognize that to show the change over time you would want to show you know 10 years of data or so Mm-hmm. They did not do that for the overall count of data. They just said how many were created in 2021. So you didn't even have the information in front of you to compare to compare and say, well, this looks exactly like what we've done in the last nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting, I thought. Mm-hmm. What uh, did they say? Why did they? They said, that? well, that wasn't the point of this report. This report was just to show uh, where we are so far uh, to come to, you know, complement the programs that are working and mm-hmm. to show how how those are are going and old progress reports from historically are available on the website if anybody wanted to look at them so you know the public out there the, mm-hmm. the greater public if you are interested you just yeah, need just to one day you wake up and you're like hey yeah you just need to go back and dig <laughs> through the archives pull up the pdf for each of the last 10 years mm-hmm. pull out the you know Scroll down to the 22nd page, mm-hmm. figure out where the, the number is and pull that out, <laughs> put it in a spreadsheet, go get the other PDF and do that, you know, 10 more times and then create your own chart and then you could see. Yeah. But luckily they don't have to do that because we have a handy chart. That's right. Yeah. So you can take a look at our story. So in any case, uh, if you were expecting the the new housing element cycle to be the one where the city uh, is aggressively in pursuit of its high target. Mm-hmm. One year in, we're not looking so great. You'd be disappointed. You'd be disappointed. So. I have a question that I probably sure. should have asked earlier. Mm-hmm. When we're talking homes, mm-hmm. home building, mm-hmm. houses, are yeah. we talking like actual 
single homes or we're talking like units and all, apartments or what units all units okay apartments so anything, condos homes anything. anywhere yeah and one one thing the city said to me in response is you know this thing counts all homes mm-hmm. i i don't use the word unit i just i don't i don't, I don't think anybody <laughs> considers themselves as like living in a unit I, and i and i like to break the idea that like an apartment's a home yeah if that's where you I live call that's my your home. apartment a home yeah, yeah that's where you live that's your home so they're all homes uh but the the, the city pointed out that um housing element process counts all homes the same even though you know a micro unit might be home to one person and a two-bedroom unit might be home to two roommates mm. and a three-bedroom unit might be home to a whole family mm-hmm. um, mom and dad and two kids whatever and that their priority is to create as many places for people to live mm-hmm. and so they sort of reject the straight unit count as a way of understanding how well the home building process is going because you know if they're providing uh bigger units than you know with more bedrooms they more people they may be be Mm -hmm. providing more places for people to live did not provide any data to to show how how different the analysis would be if you if you'd counted things that way um we should also say that um you know they break down on income categories and um while they were not close to the target on any income category things were much worse for uh, income st- restricted units. Um, so the market rate units, um, basically anything that is that has has no subsidy, the, those were about eighty three percent of the of the total need, um, which was you know close to about a third of all of the homes expected to be built. Um, and the the low income category, or excuse me, the very low income category, um, developers built just five uh, percent of the need. The low-income category uh, built about just twelve percent of the need, and the middle-income, the the stuff for the but you know ab- above the median, mm-hmm. um, but but still typically not served by unsubsidized market rate units, um, it was less than one percent. Oh my of gosh! What the, of what the state says they need, less than one percent. Um, so I'm it basically non-existent. They built of those homes in the mar- the category. Yeah, any guess? Permitted. Moderate income units last year, 19. We built 19 of those last year. Uh, Far cry from the nearly 2,500 we Mm -hmm. were expected to build. Wow. The suicide crisis among veterans has been well-documented, but another dark phenomenon exists just beneath the surface, in San Diego and across the country, high suicide rates among young men serving active duty. Will Huntsbury is our senior investigative reporter, and he looked into this trend over the last few months. Will, what's up, my man? Hey, what's up, guys? Nice to have you here. Yes. Yeah, I wish it was under uh, peppier circumstances, but sure. uh, nonetheless, tell us a, a little bit, broadly speaking, what you found here and, and, and sort of how it how to distinguish it from the sort of what we have all been reading about for a few years now about the probably longer than a few years now, I should say uh, about veteran suicides. Yeah. Yeah. You said it well in the intro. Um, You know, I think we kind of that's penetrated our consciousness, right? That like there is this issue when veterans come home um, where they seem to be disconnected from the civilian world and there's a suicide crisis. Um, some people put it 22 veterans a day. 
um, dying by suicide. But I looked into something different. You know, I looked into suicides among young men aged 17 to 25 in the active duty military. Um, so that's like that's like core service population. Core service. But yes, that's the biggest chunk of, of any other age group in the entire um, in the entire military. Right. And these people, for the most part, haven't done combat tours. You know, they're still in the military. They're surrounded by other people who understand what it's like to be in the military. The The main findings were that basically those young men were almost twice as likely to die by suicide as their civilian peers. So the, the rate of suicide among 17, 25-year-olds is 45.6 per 100,000. It's a lot more than it is for civilians at about 25 per 100,000 for the same age group, same same sex. 17, 20, 17 to 25 year olds, male in the service actively versus 17 to 25 year old male in the civilian population. Apples to apples comparison, nearly twice as large. And in both cases, we're dealing with, uh, you know, large uh, denominators here. The the number of 17 to 25 year olds in the military is pretty large. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. So right. you can totally do this kind of comparison. And it's especially shocking because for decades and decades, um, the active duty, um, the rate of suicide for active duty military members was much lower than the civilian population. You know, military leaders were telling us, we, we do a screening for the people we bring into the military. They're more physically fit. They're more mentally fit. And um, something is something has happened where, you know, that is no longer the case. Yeah. And OK, so something has happened. Talk the, the newness of this phenomenon. How, how, how new is it? When did this this change? It started changing in the early 2000s uh, when we were going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so. You know, at that point, the operational tempo of the military is something a lot of people will talk to you about. You know, whether you're deployed or not, everybody's just running more drills, doing more things. Everything's more intense. We've been out of that intense mode, certainly, you know, in an apples to apples way. You know, the past seven years have been nothing like, uh, you know, 2003 to 2012, right? The but um, nonetheless, this phenomenon continues, you know, and, and the suicide rate among the general population has in general been growing also. Um, mm-hmm. But now it's also going inside those military gates and uh, a lot of money has been spent trying to understand it and fix it. And, and that money being thrown at the problem is not working. Yeah. Well, so what are, what are they throwing it on? What, what has been the military's response to to this if if they even acknowledge that it, that this trend is taking place yeah they kind of acknowledge it but um they do a couple of annual suicide reports you know it's a big government agency there's reports on reports on reports mm-hmm. um but what they tend to do is an age and gender adjusted suicide comparison of the whole military versus uh the whole u.s population and if you look at those so they don't break it down as you did into 17 to 25 year old males. That's what we did that was new. Yeah. Breaking it down into 17, 25 year old males and trying to look at the subsets mm-hmm. where there actually is a big disparity. That That's what we were able to do that those reports don't do. Yeah. Nonetheless, you know, they've spent a lot of money um, 
you know, on a lot of people will talk to you about resiliency. They want to train troops to, um, you know, be resilient when it comes to emotional problems, whether that's stress or anger management or family communication. They want to help troops be better at financial planning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I talked to an expert who has studied some of those programs and a lot of those programs have been found to be ineffective but that still is one of the main ways that the military is actively going after it. I mean, think about the military culture and a warrior culture, right? I, I, that's That's got to be part of what you think about when you think about this. You go to boot camp, especially in, you know, these infantry geared services like the Marines and the Army. They're telling you to push through your pain, that, that's one of the biggest lessons, if not the biggest possible lesson you can learn. Push through your pain so you can help your brothers and sisters and help your country. You know, that is the name of the game. So then when you're asking people to tell you about their mental health um, problems that they're experiencing or crises that they're, they're experiencing, the kind of shame you might feel or the sense of failure you might feel associated with that is going to be much more amplified than it is here where there's already a stigma, you know, for mental health problems. So I think that is a, that is, that is the problem where these services aren't getting through to the people they need to in the way they need to, because of this greater warrior culture of sacrifice within the military. Right. It's like you just went through this whole thing like suck it up, be strong. Like we're all in this together. If if you you know drop out of your push up, whatever, then your whole whole group is going to do the push ups with you. And totally, you know, if you're not strong enough, then they're going to suffer. So you're kind of like going through this whole thing of like you need to be the strong person, but then at the same time they want you to talk about your feelings. And it extends well beyond boot camp. You yeah. know, I mean, if if you are a mechanic and you're in a unit with, you know, 10 or 15 other mechanics. If you need to leave to go get therapy once a week, um, that's not necessarily supported is what people who've previously served have told me. You know, Um, I spoke to one former sailor who was having a lot of mental health trouble, had actually spoken up like you're supposed to, had actually got time set aside to see a counselor. But then she said, all her um, fellow sailors made her feel like she was letting them down when she was like leaving weekly to get the treatment she needed. Yeah. And so, and that's peer pressure. That's not, that's not even something, I mean, there would be ways to deal with it, but that's not something that's easily handled by, uh, by management, by, from the, right. from the top or down. Like sending more emails about awareness or things yeah. like that. Creating, it's not gonna creating fix new it. programs. Right. We right. Got, they got flyers for days, but those aren't working. Yeah. Well, and so, uh, you know, I mean, so take a step back here. You talk about resiliency programs. The, you, the way you describe those sorts of, you know, teaching people financial literacy, uh, giving people sort of all the tools they need to, to at, at least take some potential stressors off the table, right? That's not exactly the same thing as like teaching a white knuckle mindset, right? It's, it's, it, th- these, these are actual programs, Right. Sure. Is that, yeah. is that a fair description? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's 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 pri- it's try. I think that the you know military leaders I talk to and where I've read what they've said. Yeah. They're they're trying to teach people to get beyond a white knuckle mindset and you know 
really be able to successfully manage stress or financial problems rather than just, you know, white knuckle through them. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, but the, the res, uh, experts you talked to who, who found that these resiliency programs were not effective, the, the, what, what were, what were those findings basically? What was, is that just sort there of was observationally? There was a huge program review. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think it, because not all resiliency programs are different, you know, each branch of service has multiple resiliency programs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the the study said there are like more than 100 across all of them and they didn't look into them, each single one. But right. of the, you know, sample that they looked at, like by and large, they didn't seem to be making a measurable impact. And, and the military has not pivoted from that based on those findings in any room. Not, not entirely. No. Yeah. And you know, one, one of the things that one of the, so some people are starting to acknowledge resiliency isn't working. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a former DOD head was talking on a podcast and he's, you know, he was acknowledging numbers are going up and up even as we keep doing more and more resiliency. So the answer that he suggested was a big data approach where, the military has more data on their troops than like anyone has on any of their employees ever. Right. So they want to bring together this data. They want to do hyper focused case studies of every suicide that's gone down and then apply this data to try to get a predictive approach to suicides, which I think sounds it, horrifying to me. Yes. Yeah, just really out of touch with the fact that like, Something about the culture is creating such a stigma for people to reach out for help. And we're not going to address that. We're actually going to try to predict this with big data, which, you know, just not even looking at the privacy implications and just the kind of surrealness of that. Just this disconnect from fixing cultural problems is is pretty immense, I think. Mm -hmm. Well. Well, so this is the first in a multi-part series that we have coming out in the in the days and weeks to come. Uh, so readers can look forward to those. You've got more findings on the way. Uh, on this first story, did did you have a- anything else you wanted to mention? Yeah, you know, I spoke to just so many families over the course of reporting this out over several months, and I quoted a former Marine in this story and a former sailor both of whom uh, had attempted suicide and did not um, did not end up dying by suicide. And, you know, both of them are really happy about that at this point. Um, and I guess that's like a good thing to mention and something I've held on to in this reporting because suicide is such a dark phenomenon that we don't really talk about and that we don't understand But, you know, um, one of those people I talked to, you know, she said her first reaction upon waking up was anger. But over time, like she discovered there was like a lighter side to all the darkness she was experiencing. And now she counsels other vets and other military members. And so I think, you know, for for people out there who might be considering it, like there is hope and there is another way. And that that's what the people have told me who've experienced it, you know. If you or someone you know needs help or might be considering suicide, please call 1-800-273-8255. More resources are also available in the show notes.
join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. All right, the story from NBC7 Investigates is San Diego police face scrutiny over woman's murder. Uh, It refers to a June murder of Connie Dadka, a 45-year-old who was killed by Parrish Chambers Jr., allegedly. And um, that would be tragic if not for this alone, if not for this specific quote from a neighbor who is, uh, is going by the pseudonym Michelle. Quote, about the police, had they just done their job, she would still be alive. Uh, The sort of quote that you get nice and high in the story because it really sets the tone. Uh, We are joined by Alexis Rivas, who uh, worked on the story as part of a a big team. How many people here? We have one, two, three, (laughs) four, at least five people. I'm sure there's there's more that, that that didn't make it to the byline. Uh, But Alexis is a a, a very well-told story, very heartbreaking story. Um, Can you maybe set the stage for us? Tell us a little bit about what happened to Connie that night. It's it's just really sad. And so basically over the course of the last three weeks, we used um, uh, dispatch records, audio, not to mention multiple interviews with neighbors and even surveillance video we obtained from one of the neighbors. And Uh, we took a look at screenshots from 911 calls to piece together a timeline. And essentially uh, there's a gentleman who is banging on a door of a woman who lives alone in a unit screaming at that door and at other neighbors for about an hour. That by itself prompted multiple calls to 911 because there was a fear that he was trying to get in and he was just frightening enough based on the perception of some neighbors that they, they were afraid of their own safety. So they call 911 an hour after that, at least six 911 calls that we were able to track, uh, he manages to, according to uh, witness accounts, manages to climb around the unit and bust a glass sliding door on a second story balcony to break into an apartment. Uh, someone calls 911 reporting that as it's happening. The person who called originally calls again because she claims she hears it happening. While she's on the phone with the dispatcher, she hears a very violent fight. At that point, uh, officers begin to stage nearby. They want to get multiple officers in place to go in. That takes 45 minutes. 
before they arrive and knock on the door of the unit. So the first the first knock on the door from the police is an hour and 45 minutes after the first 911 call. About nearly two hours. Yeah. Nearly two hours. And 45 minutes from the call that says this person has scaled a balcony, broken a glass door, and I hear some a, a physical altercation happening inside. That's right. Okay. They knock on the door and the one of the neighbors who witnessed the break-in tells us she points out the broken glass and gets the officers on scene flashing their lights, nodding their heads. They see that that's the point of a break-in. And despite despite this, they, they don't decide to enter the building. They told us they tried calling the woman who lives there's phone. They looked for her car, but they didn't break or force entry into the home. They decided to walk away, uh, which a lot of neighbors were, were very upset about, didn't understand. The next day, uh, the man that broke in decides to get out of the apartment and contact one of the neighbors and tells them to call 911 because Connie is now dead. He's later arrested and he's now facing murder charges. So do we know when uh, the estimated time of death for, for Connie? We still don't have a cause of death. Okay. That's, that's part of the issue. Uh, we're waiting on the medical examiner to give us that. But the uh, neighbor who heard the fight while she was on the phone with 911 mm-hmm. uh, claims that there she could hear this fight like he was running around the unit and chasing her and just things sort of being thrown loud thuds. And that lasted for about five minutes mm-hmm. and then just complete silence. And she didn't hear anything after that until the next morning. Okay. So, so you know, this, this person is under arrest for murder right now. Um, the allegation is either that it happened sometime in that altercation or some other time between when the police knocked on the door, declined to force entry into the, into the condo uh, and the next morning when uh, this, when this man exited from the condo and uh and told a neighbor to call 911 because connie was dead exactly you know we've uh, we've requested the cause of death rule the mm-hmm. entire emmy report and hopefully that'll at least tell us you know the, the approximate time yeah but uh at the end of the day you know when we look at the timeline and we're thinking about it now as so we're getting ready to do some updates today it's just had they responded within the standard time for what the, this was initially categorized as a disturbing the peace, the neighbors who called 911 would strongly refute that description. Yeah. But even if it was treated as a disturbing the peace priority to phone call, that's a 27 minute time. Had officers met that standard, he would that's, have still been the, outside. Okay. So that the police, the police department standard uh, for an acceptable response to a, a priority two level call is 27 right. minutes. That's that's their own self, self-administered self standard. Uh, priority one, uh, which is what they changed it to when the break-in was reported to 911, that was around just before eight or around eight o'clock. That yeah. has a response time goal of 14 minutes. Okay. Um, you know, part of the reasons they tell us they didn't go in is because they couldn't hear a disturbance. Again, here, the counter argument is had you met that standard time, that that might have been very different. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I you know, and I, I don't I don't know if, if you know this, that the 45 minute staging area, does that does does that count to the uh, the response time target or does that happen uh, sort of after the fact once that once they've arrived? That does not count. Yeah. 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 Um, OK, well, so it's it's horrifying to anybody who um, expects that when you call 911, you would. Um, get somebody who would urgently help. Um, and, 
I, I wonder what is the what has the police department's response been to the way this played out? What 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 did they tell you about their response? I think there's really three big issues here, right? So yeah. what did it, why did it take so long just to get there? Yeah. Um, to that effect, uh, you know, they couldn't really answer uh, about what else what might have been going on. However, we do know, you know, there was a suicide call that took away. Uh, at least seven of the officers that ultimately responded. There was a road road rage call that took away two of the officers that ultimately responded. Um, But uh, that's really it. And that's just kind of what we've been able to discern Mm -hmm. from requesting what was going on around that time, you know, in the Northern division area. Also, you know, you mentioned that the neighbors sort of vehemently disagreed that this was disturbing the peace to begin with. So, so even before we get into the delayed response, you've got neighbors here, here who I, I understand you to be saying, uh, there has to be a better way to categorize this disturbance other than disturbing the peace that this was seemed violent in nature. Maybe, yeah, I don't know, you know, stalking something along those lines I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the, what the right code for that call would be, but their concern was not that it was loud. Their concern was that it was threatening. Correct. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Lieutenant Shablowski certainly spoke to that in a piece, which was uh, part of the problem was initially the format of this call came in as a priority too. Mm-hmm. And those do stack up because party ones and party zeros will be coming before that. And that could just happen. And like, let's keep the context of what's going on. I think is really important too. We're talking about this at a time where there's a lot of news stories in our market Mm -hmm. and across the country Mm -hmm. about thinning police departments Mm -hmm. uh, with just low staffing, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of open positions. Uh, So, you know, there's, this is happening in an environment where there is a strained police force. Yeah. And you know, look, I did a story, like five years ago now, probably almost exactly five years ago, about how response times had increased significantly on lower priority calls. That you know, a priority four call at that time was uh, routinely reaching a two-hour, two-hour-plus response time, um, and that that was in response to to you know personnel problems that were going on at that time. You know the the. Um, hiring and and uh, recruiting problems and the retention problems that the police department is facing have been going on for years now, and that sort of the way that the department had managed to to get through it was to focus their efforts on these high priority calls. Um, as this story, I think, demonstrates, though, what happens if a high priority call is miscategorized as a low pri- a lower priority call, um, and you you know you just you're putting a lot of a, a lot ride. There's a lot riding on that original categorization, and sometimes people make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, I, the we've looked at those response times recently too, and I want to say, you know, they've definitely gone down, um, but they do tend to at least keep meeting the priority zeros. Mm-hmm, right. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you're like, well, what happens when this gets marked as not a priority zero? Right. It's absolutely a factor. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second, I think, big question is, why didn't you guys go inside? Yeah. Um, and so their their case really, I think, is that while he's not speaking on behalf of the officers who were actually there, Lieutenant Shablowski, who is with the homicide unit, says there seemed to be a belief by the officers, or at least a reasonable theory, that he might really live there and that he might have just broken into his own place. And that's not a crime. Mm. And... Um, I, I would counter that or at least hold it up next to the fact that, okay, but if you lock yourself out, how likely are you to scream at a door for an hour? Yeah. Um, smash an entire sliding glass door. Um, 
And, and of course, that loud fight that the other 911 caller was reporting to police, all of these things just, so, you know, make that I can understand why a lot of people have come back to us and, and responded to this or commented on this. On, on, they just don't understand how that's a reasonable perception of what was going on. That said, I think you know, the one statement that kind of I keep hearing in my head over and over again from that interview is, is Shablowski saying, when we break into someone's unit, that's we've got to be on point tactically. We've got to be on point legally because if this is someone who lived there and we use excessive use of force or deadly force, mm-hmm. we're going to face a lot of hard questions too. And I, and I do empathize with the difficulty of having to make that decision. I mean, because even just two hours before we went live with our story, I think the Union Tribune had an op-ed about um, criticizing the police forcing entry into the Little Italy apartment with mm-hmm. a, where a middle-aged woman uh, for an eviction in which they did wind up using deadly force mm-hmm. and they've come under fire for that for yeah. that decision so it, it I, I don't envy the position they're in i just go back to the multiple phone calls neighbors put in what they were hearing what they were seeing and i, I do what does it take <laughs> if that's not enough you know i think that's that's still the question that i have tonight yeah, I, I mean, I think your 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 response there is is well taken. I think it's it's true. Um, you, you you don't have to be an especially uh, big news junkie to to re- recall the last few years and the scrutiny the police have been under for for century and the you know reality of what can happen when when police uh, force their way into a household, right? And they they need to be prepared in that case to use deadly force. And if they're wrong, then that can be. Uh, a different tragedy than the one we're talking about right now, um, I guess. But, you know, would you also say, and here's this, this quote from Lieutenant Shablonsky, uh, they were making the best decision they had based on the information at the time. And at the end of the day and the following day, did a tragedy happen? Absolutely. But I don't think that's because of the officer's response. I guess it's just not at all clear to me that they did make the best decision based on the information they had at the time. I think if you were to, if you slice any one piece of information and look at it in isolation, perhaps you could say, well, it, you know, uh, so somebody climbed a balcony and broke a window. Have, have you ever locked yourself out? Um, it's the totality of the information where it no longer becomes clear that they made the best decision based on the information they had at the time. I think that's an absolutely fair question to ask. And yeah. it's one that I don't think you're the only one asking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, and that's a big reason why we're not going to stop looking into this. Um, we, there's more information we want from police. We're hoping to get it soon. Um, and I, I, I know even city officials have expressed some interest in, in finding out what's going on here. So I don't think this is the end of it. I'll leave it at that. Okay, fair enough. Well, we can leave it at that as well. Alexis, you guys did uh, fantastic work. The whole team should be very proud of it. Uh, Anybody who is interested in reading the story, um, it's well presented. There's some good photographs. You guys put together a timeline in case anybody had a tough time following this. Um, The story is San Diego police face scrutiny over woman's murder. You did a great job. Thanks so much. And thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Get the newsletter for this podcast at vosd.org slash pod. You'll get updates when we drop bonus episodes and extra details and show notes about the stories we cover. Subscribe at vosd.org slash pod. 
I'm Andrew Keats, Managing Editor at Voice of San Diego. Andrea Lopez Viafania is my fellow Managing Editor. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.